Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Many young athletes who play the sport of football have dreams and aspirations of playing in the NFL someday. Whether those dreams and aspirations are realistic or not is a little bit different story. I could easily go through all the stats of the continually shrinking odds of the success rates of moving on from high school to college to the NFL. It's actually kind of depressing if you look at those statistics, and I would not advise you to do it if you are trying to get your spirits lifted of going into the NFL. But with all the concerns these days about long-term play in the NFL and the risk of developing chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE, we've been seeing steadily declining numbers of football players in high school essentially each year over the last decade. Although interestingly, seeing a gradual increase in the number of female football players over the same period. What does the future hold for football? How much concern do NFL players have about CTE? Is it best for football players to play multiple sports? We tackle all this and more today on the podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm honored to be joined by a fellow, albeit a much more successful podcaster, Chris Long. He's the host of the Greenlight Podcast, a highly entertaining podcast about all things sports and some things not so sports related. But besides his success in the podcasting world, he is also a two-time Super Bowl champion, having won back-to-back years with different teams, the New England Patriots in Super Bowl 51, and then turned around to beat his former team playing with the Philadelphia Eagles in Super Bowl 52. He had a highly successful football career at the University of Virginia, which resulted in him being selected as the second overall draft pick in the 2008 NFL Draft, and was drafted by the St. Louis Rams, which is where we first crossed paths. He retired in 2019 after 11 seasons in the NFL. He's married with two young boys, and in case you weren't aware, his dad and brother also played in the NFL. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Doc, what's up, man? It's great to hear your voice. Well, it's good to talk to you. It's been a little while. You know, we've had some offline discussions over the years, and uh, you know, I've sent you a little congratulations here and there after those Super Bowl championships. Something I never got to take part of as a team physician. I, I joined the St. Louis Rams in the lean years, as you did. Yeah. Um, so, so didn't really have that opportunity to to enjoy that. But I was uh, really happy for you. You know, we'll we'll kind of just dive right in here because we've had these discussions a little bit. Your thoughts on CTE? Is it something yeah. you're concerned about? I mean, it's something that I'm certainly like realistically concerned about, but I'm also not one that feels the need to, I don't know, create this self-fulfilling prophecy where I'm freaking out about myself. I mean, I think mental health is tricky anyways. Yep. And I think oftentimes we've, we've kind of talked about this offline and you're the expert, you know, but as a player, um, I do believe that just the possibility that it could happen to you can sometimes create a bit of a, a shitstorm, for lack of a better term, in your sure. head. And I can remember when that sort of thing first started, you know, and it, we were overdue talking about this stuff and researching this stuff and being open when it came to, like, giving people information that are playing the game. But when that thing started, it was easy for me to kind of go into this, like, inner tailspin of, like, damn, dude, is my life's dream you know, this thing, my life's work, is it the thing that's going to end up killing me? Or is it going to be the thing that ends up having me not make any sense or not remember my kids or act erratically or all these horror stories you hear? 
I believe in CT. Obviously, it's real. The buildup of tau protein on your brain is irrefutable. But where I, as an athlete, like if you're to ask me like what my worry level is, like I don't believe, and I could be swayed, obviously, that we have figured out to a T how tau protein buildup in your head manifests predictably, like automatically behaviorally so like listen i had a dad who played 13 years he got hit in the head more than me i mean old cba old training camp all that stuff and we had some tough training camps back in the day but it wasn't like that and my dad is knock on wood sharp as a tack you know brilliant cat emotionally all there great grandparent great father good friend to me so i think for every horror story you hear not only do we discount a lot of the very important like other mental health issues that people probably come into the league with. We also discount the existential pressure of, of or the finding out who the hell you are after football, reinventing yourself. And you can be on an island. Success can put you on an island. It sounds like, you know, some people are listening and saying like, oh, it's no big deal. You get paid. Who wouldn't want to be paid to play football at a high level? A lot of these guys become targets. They have no blueprint for what they're doing after football. So we're discounting all that. And then, you know, in my opinion, we can kind of create a little self-fulfilling prophecy with it. So I'm all for like, let's run this thing down. Let's figure it out. I don't know how I feel about my kids playing. Could happen to me, but I also feel pretty damn good. And for every bad story we hear, we don't talk about the Allen Pages of the world, the Howie Longs of the world. And then all the good news that doesn't sell, which are dudes that have retired to really peaceful, productive lives. And you're just not hearing about it. Yeah, it's a good point. And, you know, we've had that discussion too. You know, I'm I'm curious, you know, we as a sports medicine physician, it's it's my world. I mean, I talk about this a lot and we talk about concussions a lot. Is that something that you guys talk about in the locker room at all or or as, you know, as players and now a former NFL player? Do you guys even have this discussion like in small talk? I think we do. I think we did. You know, the the conversations change over the years. I mean, like when you're in a locker room, a lot of people cope with like the possibility of something really scary by joking about it. You know, it's not something you joke about, but you know, I've joked about it with my teammates before and I'm allowed to because it could afflict me. I mean, it probably, Mm -hmm. you know, I probably have CT, you know, like, so I always felt fine about like, this is the way we cope with the possibility of us actually really messing ourselves up doing this is we, we bust balls about it. We joke about it. And then as you get older and you deal with retirement, you do have your few friends who are acting a little bit different or, you know, that, that are going through something, or maybe they are, you know, kind of the symptoms are manifesting in them. It becomes a little bit more of a serious conversation. And I think dudes quietly do talk about like, are you afraid? Are you Are you concerned? Have you noticed anything? And these conversations do go on. And I think they should go on. I mean, Mm -hmm. like, it's harder if you just don't talk about the boogeyman, you know, like, you got to be able to talk it out and be very realistic about it. And I also believe that hopefully, we're the last generation that's not going to know exactly what we signed up for. And I think we'll also hopefully, if I'm being an optimist, be the last generation that doesn't know how to do anything about it. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Do you, do you think the NFL and NCAA are really doing enough? I mean, obviously, we've seen a big change from when you started your playing career from when I started my career in sports medicine. I mean, certainly the awareness is there. I think football has probably taken this by the, you know, kind of really kind of taken it uh, as unlike other sports. I mean, we see FIFA getting under fire all the time now mm-hmm. with how they're handling concussions. Do you think that we're we're doing enough? Do you think that there should be more that's done for the players? I think it depends. I mean, I, I don't think there's a way to make the game safe. You know, the, the pro football will always be a dangerous sport. And I think people like to live in this world where it's A or B, 
and you know we can either make it safe or it's a barbaric sport and we can find a middle ground we can kind of like and we've already done this we've worked through some of the things that you you notice a lot of players getting really hurt doing and that's things like the wedge Mm -hmm. you know there's certain hits that we're trying to eliminate from our game obviously there's protection of quarterbacks but that's money you know i don't think the nfl's done enough because you see things like you know, the race norming scandal, which I don't know how, thank goodness the NFL has a vice grip on most media outlets because, like, <laughs> you know, we would have heard a lot more about what transpired over the last couple of weeks and what has been transpiring. So when it came to denying black players um, benefits, essentially, because you've baselined them lower, so it's harder to show a cognitive, I don't know if I'm using the word correctly, but cognitive decline. Yeah, you are. You know, that's 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 messed up. I don't know what they could be doing. Like I'm no expert, but I also think that when you're doing things like that, you're obviously not doing enough. You're not doing the right things. And I think the NFL has to become better at doing the right thing, not doing what's right for their wallets because it's such a fat and happy league. You know, like there has to be a point at some point where the NFL, we can appeal to like the morality of this whole thing. And I think eventually pressure bust pipes and we're living in in an age where, Nobody's safe and nothing can truly be done in the dark. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's going to be change that's coming and there's already change that's happening. But if we're to believe that people are making changes out of any concern, and I know there's a ton of doctors who care, but the bottom line, like ownership, the commissioner, you got to really be concerned and that's going to show through in what you do. If you keep getting caught doing bullshit (laughs) and then you apologize and then you fix things like no one's going to believe you. So I do think that like, at least from my perspective, the NFL could do a lot more. Yeah. You know, you've, you played 11 seasons in the NFL. You kind of mentioned this and kind of hinted a little bit about it as far as your, your kids would, would you let your boys play uh, knowing what you know, or even not football. I mean, you have a wife who played lacrosse. You you played yeah. lacrosse, correct? In high school? Yeah. 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 I played lacrosse. My wife played lacrosse. Yeah. You know, fastest growing sport in the United States right now. And, but there's also obviously concussion risk there. Have you had that discussion with your wife as far as kind of future for your boys? I mean, it's early. I know you got young. Yeah, so. no. I mean, I think a lot of people do have this discussion relatively early. It's funny. My dad didn't want me to play football, you know, like, but the whole strategy was let him go play at 12 and he'll get his nose bloodied. And he's not a tough kid. So he'll come home and not want to do it anymore. Well, I took to it. I wasn't very good, but I really enjoyed the chaos and everything. And so I think every parent is going to have to make that choice in America because it's still America's most popular sport. I know the numbers are down, but when it comes to like what dominates television screen, talking points, you know, who are our most famous recognizable athletes? Well, basketball has a big leg up because they don't wear helmets and there's less players on the team, but the star power of Tom Brady, of Patrick Mahomes, of some of these guys, these position players is incredible. And it's as high as it's ever been. So I think every parent's going to have to have this conversation. And me currently right now, the way I would 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 kind of say my mindset is like kick the can down the road as long as possible. I don't think I think high school football, you know, I think if it's being taught correctly, you know, if it's being played correctly. You know, that's inevitable. My kid's going to want to want to get get, you know, get dirty and go play football. And there's a safe way to do it. And there's a safe way to, you know, some of the things you're talking about, about concussion protocol, which is something we didn't even just talk about in the NFL. They yeah. are doing more when it comes to concussion protocol. It's at times getting harder to get back on the field. Well, that's what we want. Right. 
I think, you know, the best thing that trainers and doctors can do from a player's perspective at any level is to take the decision out of the player's hand, which I know is tricky. I think in high school, if your trainers are doing things correctly, if coaches are teaching the game correctly, I think it's perfectly fine to play football. And I'm not somebody that believes, as I alluded to earlier, that there's a way to play football in a safe manner. It's not a safe sport, you know, and not every sport is safe. And if, if people want to play football and they know the risks and they're aware, they should have the opportunity to do it. But I'm not a fan of a youth football. That's not to say it's nothing personal against anybody there. I don't think that some of these coaches know the damage that they're doing. Yeah. You know, not just to children's bodies, but also like if you really think a kid's going to end up growing up and being good at football, probably not getting the best uh, coaching at the, you know, the, uh, the, the peewee football level nationally. Sure. So you were a multi-sport athlete growing up. Was that something that actually your parents encouraged of you or is that just something you gravitated to? Well, I think they probably encouraged it because it was more the norm. And my dad, although he played 13 years in the league, wasn't some gung-ho football guy all the time. Like, you know, his whole thing was work 100%, you know, work incredibly hard. I work everybody at whatever you do. So and that wasn't even athletics. So I felt no pressure to just play football, obviously, because he didn't even want me to play in the beginning. But, you know, I played four sports in, in high school. That was more normal to, like, to play three sports. Now four for me, it was cause I, I didn't like, you know, I had some back and forth with a baseball coach. And so I spent two years playing lacrosse mm-hmm. sandwiched in between freshman and senior year. But I, I loved experiences that I got from all four sports. And so it's becoming a cliche and like a kind of a counterculture argument for like less specialization, but like literally the best way you can be a great athlete is not to specialize. Now I also know that there's a lot of kids that don't have that same privilege that I had where, you know, eyes were going to get on me. And if I was trying to earn a scholarship, like that wasn't the end of the world if I didn't get it, you know, that sort of thing. There's a lot of kids that I understand you have to siphon into something early and you have to try to work as hard as you possibly can to go get your scholarship to be seen, that sort of thing. It's just hard to litigate, man. It's, you know, like, should you play multiple sports? Should you play one sport? I think you should always play multiple, but I also understand that there is a need for specialization for some kids. You know, obviously anybody who has any familiarity with football knows your dad. We've talked about him a lot already. We know a lot of parents like to live vicariously through their kids when they may not have been as successful in sports. For you, that obviously would be a little different. You had a father who was extremely successful in professional football. So how is that for you and your brothers growing up as the sons of a Hall of Famer? You know, I had brief interactions with your dad. He always seemed to be a pretty good guy. Um, A few times I've seen him, you know, mostly preseason football because obviously he's got that other job that he needs to do during the season did you ever feel the pressure to live up to his legacy once you made it to the nfl that's also the right time to catch him mark because like you know the preseason the results not as important he's just hoping (laughs) that someone gets out of there like healthy yeah like he and you know we talked about lean years imagine watching your kid go through that i mean that was (laughs) tough we were paid well we had awesome fans that showed up they were loyal but we sucked and we 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 struggled and you know like it was hard. And I think that was tough for any parent, let alone somebody who actually knows what it's like to lose a football game 44 to seven or, (laughs) you know, to go through the things we went through with regularity. So, you know, hats off to him and my mom, you know, my mom used to take a red eye from Oregon while my brother was playing. She'd go from Virginia to Oregon and then back to St. Louis on the way back. She wouldn't sleep after the game. We'd get home and she'd just crash. And Mm -hmm. we were both white for different reasons. So, I think their support was awesome. And I also think, you know, my dad can't help the fact that his profile put a big kind of a burden on us early. Like, 
you know, it's different. Nothing you accomplish is, is a hundred percent yours. And, mm -hmm. and that's fine. You know, like that's the reality of it. And it made me personally, at least I feel like tougher because when I got to the league, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard pressure packed deal and the growing pains are going to be tough anyways, being a top five pick. But if you've already dealt with pressure of like being under the microscope of being bet against, I know that they, like, it seems counterintuitive that, you know, Hey, a guy with, a dad who played in the league does get bet against sometimes. Well, people don't root for what they perceive to be nepotism, you know, mm -hmm. although football is not a game where nepotism really gets you anything unless you're a coach. I always, whether it was being drafted out of Virginia high or getting my second contract or, you know, even, you know, success I had later in my career. And even back as far as high school, there were just always people that would say, because of your dad, because of your dad, because of your dad. And that's fine, but it definitely grounds you because whether you like it or not, nothing you ever do is going to be that big a deal. And I think that's very healthy. So it's allowed me to be a more complete person. I haven't dumped my identity 100% into football because like very naturally, if you're trying to carve out an identity in something, I could give 100% of my time and effort into football. And believe me, I tried to outwork everybody. I, I played the game with passion. I really lived it and it crushed me when we weren't successful. But you can still realize that there's more to life than it and still do all that. And I think having a dad that has seen it, done it, and everybody knows it, doesn't let your ego get too tied up in football. Mm -hmm. Because what's the payoff for you if you're just Joe Football? Yes, I had a great career. I was very appreciative of every opportunity I had. I played longer than I ever imagined I would as a kid playing the NFL. Are you kidding me? Super Bowls, you know, the accolades, not so much because we played in St. Louis and we suck. So you never get Bowls. But like the whole thing is, it's just not that big a deal to me anymore. Like looking back, like I don't look back on it and say like, wow, look what I did. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that comes from my dad. And that's great in a lot of ways because I'm able to move on a little bit easier, I think. Sure. You mentioned the lean years. Out of anything that I've kept from the St. Louis Rams days, I have one picture hanging in my house. And it's the picture in the locker room after our one Detroit. victory, the one in 15 season. Detroit. Um, yep. Detroit. Exactly. So I, I have that one picture hanging in my house. We're That's praying. the only. Praying. Yes. Yep. Exactly. Yep. You were in there and the Fabora and yep. uh, I think uh, Laurenitis, I think you were all in the front and center of that with uh, Spags. Yeah. Yep. Listen, that just goes to show you is like, it's a, it's literally, it's just a different, we lived a different NFL life than most people, you know, yeah. and like, and I think for better or for worse, like there are things about it that I feel like absolutely shitty looking back about. And I'm like, man, I have regrets. I wish, you know, I could have experienced that part over, but also that make or break you that place, you know, mm -hmm. the way things were. And so I feel like it gave me another coat of armor for when I had to go try to win late in my career and cash it all in. And, and it get and honestly, it puts things into perspective. It humbles you. And not a lot of guys get to be humbled like that. Guys will play at these big schools where they're gods and then they'll go to these big football cities where they're gods. And like St. Louis, everybody treated you like a God. Yeah. We also happen to be one in 15 a lot. <laughs> so it humbles you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So let's switch to injuries a little bit. You know, tell us about what you consider to be the worst injury you had during your career and why was that? Man, you know, honestly, I just think about the toughest ones to play through. Like, obviously, I had two back-to-back -back bad luck injuries. You know, I tried to be as durable as I possibly could. Over my first six years in St. Louis, never missed a game, played in 100 straight games, that sort of thing. 
And then year seven, the first, first. And like my career is at this point, I'm year six and I've got 50 something sacks. I'm thinking about a hundred. I'm thinking about like goals in my career. That IR things, like when you get hurt in your prime of your career, it's really hard to get back on the horse. And especially when it's like back half of your prime, like when people think about like if you're 28, 29, that's where I was. And so I got rolled up on fighting a, a down block in a four eye uh, and I'm pushing full load haul to the sideline. And the flow of the play comes and undercuts my ankle and tore up my perineal tendons, I guess, tore up the sheath. And so we needed to get surgery and you know, I, you know, me, I just wanted to come back, but I wasn't myself. And that puts you under a lot of pressure the next year when you play crappy the last couple of meaningless games of the year. And I come back and I'm just getting my feet under me. And then the tibial plateau fracture getting rolled up on in Green Bay. And at that point, you know, it's kind of over for you in St. Louis. So those were tough because you knew as it was happening, like this is going to alter like my legacy here. You know, not that I do legacy talk as like a pretty good player but like everybody's got one and like the way you think about how your career went it will forever be different because of these two years but the hardest thing I ever played through was probably a damn high ankle sprain I didn't want to be a pain in the ass or I didn't want to be like soft about it so I didn't bother Reggie enough about how bad my ankle hurt like after a game I just came in and checked in on him and was like because I didn't want to be in the training room because I hate treatment <laughs> And I was like, yo, yeah, I don't know. He, like, took a look at it, and I was trying to downplay it. He's like, yeah, probably good. Like, let's see how it goes, like, over the next couple of days. And I woke up on Monday. I couldn't walk. Nothing changed for a week. So, you know, that entire year, which was my contract year, I didn't want to miss any games. And that thing was high enough that it was pretty uncomfortable. But we just found a way every Sunday. And honestly, looking back, it's what you had to do in a contract year. And I'm pretty proud of the effort. Because at least in those situations, you have an opportunity to show your teammates that you're willing to play hurt. And that's a big thing for me is like deciding on what stuff you can play with and also the type of stuff you need to be your number one advocate. And I felt like that was a challenge in a season that wasn't going great for me personally, but also like, hey, can I step up to the plate and be the guy I say I am? For my teammates. So I think every player's got a story like that that they deal with. And and for me, it was probably that one, I guess, because it sounds so small. But you know how high ankles are. Oh, well, that's the thing. It's just it drives me crazy when you see people out there on Twitter and they're talking about, oh, it's just a high ankle sprain. I'm like, you've not ever had one or played on one, have you? And I, I mean, that just gives you respect. I mean, people don't have any clue about how bad probably Sam Bradford's ankle was that year that he played oh. through when he had his high ankle sprain and boy, God bless him that he, that he kept pushing through that thing. But boy, yeah, I, it, it's just one of those things that I don't think people have any clue. It feels like breaking a bone. It doesn't feel like a sprain. It feels like you broke your ankle and you try to run on it. And there's just incredibly like sharp shooting pains and there's a lack of mobility. And then, you know, it's just the whole nine yards. And And the problem is when you play on stuff like that, you have to consider, you know, that your your ankle flexion is incredibly important as a football player, especially yeah, yeah. as a rusher. And, like, you're not going to be the same when you decide to scar things up sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the dance you, you do as a player. It's, everything's a, a calculation. It's like there's pros and cons to playing through certain shit. And, you know, it's hard to slow us down. And that's why I always say, like, the best thing that in situations not like that where it should be a non-negotiable the best thing trainers and doctors can do i feel like is just take it off the player's desk so to speak because players will well i don't know about not all players but there's a lot of players in the nfl who do not want to come out yeah you know, oh yeah don't want to come out of a game yeah yeah that's the that's the dance i have with with 
kids in my office when when I see them is that you know they see what you guys do, mm-hmm. and you know I have to remind them. I go, just remember, you're not getting paid millions of dollars to try and work through this injury. So let, let's take it a little slow, and let's take it a little easy, and let's get this thing fixed first, and then then we'll worry about it because that's probably not going to happen if you try and play through this thing. But because yeah, you don't, yeah, you're right because you don't like you don't realize when you're rehabbing an injury even if you're young and invincible like it doesn't apply to rehab Mm -hmm. you know like i think one of the biggest lessons i i I learned like throughout my career was like how important you only get one shot at rehabbing something Mm -hmm. and so like being aware of that and then being like really detail oriented because we're not all detail oriented dudes (laughs) we want to move at a million miles an hour so when you're doing proprioception drills with like marbles (laughs) <laughs> you know, like you come in and Reggie Scott, you're like, Reggie, what we got today? Like you're ready to take on the world. You've just gotten over whatever injury you're dealing with, whatever surgery you're like, I want to attack because that's the only way, you know, well, we're going to pick up marbles today <laughs> and that's the right thing to do. But like crawling is a hard thing for, for players to do. And it's easy to lose focus. And then you, you lose like whatever flexibility or yeah. So even young athletes should be really cognizant of like the rehab process. It's an opportunity. Yeah. You know, talk about Twitter world. You know, you had tweeted about your experience with Mono as a freshman in college after Sam Darnold got diagnosed. And <laughs> Twitterverse went crazy about him not playing. Yeah. Like, oh, what is the, you know, it's what's the big deal? It's Mono. Yeah. You know, you, you had Mono. Tell me about your experience with that. And were, were you getting pressure to get back to play with that? Yeah, I mean, like a little bit. I, and I get it for like old football coaches. It's like, what the, f- what? Mono? <laughs> Nucleosis. Like, I got Al Groh. He's like, he's coach with Bill Parcells. Like, Mono. But, you know, once people are educated about the fact that, like, it's really these are one of those situations where there's no playing through it. You don't want to get hit in the spleen and, like, die or whatever over a college football game. I lost a lot of weight on that, man. Like, I woke up one morning and my uvula was swollen. Like, it was the size of, like, a – my uvula was the thickness of this highlighter on my desk. You know, standard (laughs) highlighter. So I couldn't breathe. And I was like, oh, shit, something's wrong. And I'm feeling all out of whack. So this was like two days before a big Thursday night game against Clemson. And I had to stand on the sidelines. They found I was mono and they told me I was going to be out for a month. I lost like 20 something pounds. And it's a really depressing time as a college athlete because you're just sitting there alone and you don't even have like a big open wound to show for it or like a surgery. Like you got, you, you missed two games or three games or whatever it was because the bye was friendly because we think you were kissing somebody at the bar. <laughs> you know, like yep. it's just, that things have changed when it comes to any medical analysis. I feel like since 2003, yeah. 2004, but I would think something fringy like mono, especially we hadn't had an NFL player that I remembered messing with something like mono. No, no, it's been a little while. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue our discussion with host of the green light podcast, Chris Long. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. 
You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. In today's world, time is everything. When editing podcasts, <laughs> you know as well as I do, time flies. But it's not the good kind of time flying. It's the kind of time that eats a hole in your pocket. Reclaim the time you lose when you edit your podcast. Connect with The Editor Core. The Editor Core is a group of seasoned, experienced podcast editors that'll get your editing done and out the door. Use your reclaimed time to make more content. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We are back with our discussion with two-time Super Bowl champion, Chris Long. Let's talk a little bit about pressures that you may have felt personally trying to get back to play when hurt. And that could be personal pressures. It could be coaching pressures. Yeah. My sports colleagues are always surprised. We have this discussion. I talk to them about having worked with kids at the middle school level, high school level, college level, pro level with coaches. And they always look at me cross-eyed when I tell them that actually as a physician, I actually felt the most pressure for kids to get back from high school coaches than I ever did in the pros. You know, I, I think, you know, yeah. every pro coach that I ever dealt with was awesome about stuff from a medical standpoint, because they're like, you do your job. Cause I don't need to worry about that. I got 18 other things I got to worry about on game day. Right. I don't need to worry about what's going on with them. It's just next guy up kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously my role with concussions that that's the whole taboo topic. We're not even cut and some let someone go back to play if we've been thinking about diagnosing them with a concussion. So right. you know, what's your thoughts about pressure on return to play? Well, I think number one, like athletes should know that the like, number one thing is, and this applies to athletes who are self-starters, who are tough guys or girls. And you know, part of being an athlete is being tough. Okay. Like it's an awkward thing to tell somebody tough enough in society today. And I understand like, you know, toughness isn't the answer everywhere. Like empathy is in a lot of places and using your brain and that sort of thing. But there is an undeniable element to being an athlete that if you're not tough, you don't like, you're not going to have as much of a shot. So if you're tough and you're a self-starter and you want to be back on that field, you should always realize that you have to be your number one advocate. I really believe that, especially in the NFL, your injury is not important enough to everybody else to handle it with care. Now, obviously doctors and trainers, it's important to them. But when it comes to your teammates, understanding or your teammates like judging you or your coach judging you, which it does happen. And you had some good coaches you worked for that were compassionate and understood. But like, don't do things on account of other people. Because at the end of the day, when you mess your ankle up worse, or you mess up your knee, trying to go out there playing hurt, they're going to cut you. And at the end of the day, you're going to be sitting there with a badge of honor that you can wear internally, but you, your, your pockets might be hurting, your opportunities might be hurting. And if I have regrets, you know, like in 2015, well, in 14 more so, I wish I hadn't come back. You know, it just wasn't important enough, the games we were playing in. In my head at the time, and part of this makes what, what makes you who you are, it was life or death. And me getting back out there and hobbling around on an ankle that's just not working, that looks like a cinder block. When I'm not that athletic anyways, is a tough deal. And undoubtedly, it affects your standing in the locker room and not in a good way. You know, certain guys are going to say, I really respect Chris, but is their respect that they found for you going to keep your job? Yeah. You know, the things people respect are production and execution. They respect toughness, but nobody's going to go to the wall for you and protect you from getting cut or looking embarrassingly bad out there. I think you have to arm yourself with information, 
you know, listen to your doctors, be cautious and look out for number one. And in the NFL, sometimes get second opinions. If I ever got a second opinion, it wasn't like a middle finger to the ortho guys or anything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just like collaboration is important. And, you know, I, I think at times, like, you got to look outside. And once you've armed yourself with the information, and when you think of things like, am I a tough athlete? Am I trying to get over? Am I really trying my very best to, to, to expedite this process in a safe manner? Well, then you got to make your own deal with the devil. And I really do believe that, you know, some, everybody needs answers. I can tell you all that stuff. But as an athlete, I know I did stupid shit. I played with stupid stuff. I almost prided myself on it sometimes. And when you look up 10 years later, just realize you're not going to have as much pride in that as you did when you were trying to prove you were macho. So it's a little bit of talking out both sides of my mouth. Look out for number one. But what made you a, a competitive athlete, you know, sometimes is going to force you back on the field. And sure. It's not always smart. Yeah. You know, I don't want this to be all about football and injuries, you know, knowing you for a while. I know you're someone who loves to give back. You've been always very gracious to me and my kids with your time and, and including taking time this evening to to be with me on my my little humble podcast here. And, you know, one of the things I've admired most about you is your genuine good nature and sincere desire to be able to help others. You, you know, you donated your salary each week to a different charity during your 2017 season with the Eagles. But I really want you to talk a little bit about Waterboys and what you've done there and just, yeah. you know, talk to our listeners about it, what inspired you to, to do it. Well, I appreciate you saying that, man. It means a lot. And I, I just, I think I was really lucky being around players that had other causes off the field and we just inspired each other in ways that we can help and lean on our platform because the first six years of my career we did things like quietly like you know William Hayes and I would go do something you know off the books go furnish people's houses or something around the holidays or do toy drives and not bring cameras and that sort of thing but there was a point in my career where I realized I'm leaving a lot of things on the table because of some insecurity I have about not being like look at me charity guy you know, because fans are the biggest asset we have. And so once I decided, hey, I got to lean on these folks, they're passionate about our game, they want to hear what we have to say, and they can help us make a big difference, I decided to start a foundation. And it kind of all started when I went to Tanzania with James Hall, who was kind of my, my veteran, you know, grumpy James. So if I got yep. <laughs> to go on a trip with me halfway across the world, by the way, for people listening, James Hall, I got drafted high on a bad team. Well, you know what they do. In that situation, they throw the young draft pick in there and he's got to play. And I get that, but James Hall was better than me, you know, at that point. And so I felt weird about it. It happens every year in NFL locker rooms. I mean, this guy is a great player. He's been in the league a long time. Rewinding to my rookie year, far cry from us vacation together, he wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> like, he didn't talk to me for an entire year, basically. And, you know, I might be exaggerating a little bit, but he was an old NFL vet. And so me and James, eventually he, he respects me and we're tight and we're still really tight. And we go on this vacation, we go climb Kilimanjaro, which was nuts. Apologies to James for making him do that in the off season. Cause that thing will slap you in the face. We get down the mountain. We, we had a great time, but I just am of the mindset. Like when you go somewhere and the people give you just this hospitable, beautiful experience, you should pay it back. And so there was no like intentionality when it came to like, I showed up with a desire to fix the water problem. And even when I left, I didn't necessarily have that itch. I just knew that there were a number of symptoms of poverty that I just had never seen on that scale before. And, you know, I think that's why everybody should travel. We have very serious issues in our country that need to be solved. There are also a lot of serious issues around the world. And some of them might drive home like a little perspective 
And I think, you know, when we bring guys and girls over to Tanzania, now that we've started Water Boys, which of course for me was a very calculated decision, I'm a pragmatist. I want to make a difference in a really predictable way. I want people to feel like they know where their dollar is going. I want them to realize how dire situations are in which people don't have water. And I want them to know how important that gift of clean water is, not only to their health, you know, saving children's lives, keeping kids in school. You know, it's a women's issue. Women are burdened with gathering water around the world. And these are long, dangerous, arduous treks. And what can't they do while they're doing that? Work, raise their kids, you know, grow and help societies in turn grow. Agriculture's improved. So once we did all this and we, we educated a very like understandably uneducated society on like through the lens of sports, like, hey, water is very important. And we did that by bringing in Russell Wilson's and Kyle Long's and Connor Barwin's different reps in different cities. We started funding large solar powered wells and we started bringing people over to see the difference that this work makes. And so a picture's worth a thousand words. You know, I can't bring people to a brown hole in the ground with, with disgusting water that the animals are defecating in. I can't bring them to that, that watering hole and show them where women and children are gathering water and without a second thought drinking it because it's the only choice they have to try to survive. You know, all the while that woman is risking her kids' lives, but she doesn't have a choice. I can't bring them to see that firsthand, maybe, which is one of the biggest challenges, but we can tell a lot of stories and we can have people's favorite athletes go over and relay the message. And we've had military veterans over there and we climb Killy every year, conquering Killy. We bring folks over all the time to learn about our work. And when they come back, they're forever changed. I mean, it honestly is very changing and eye-opening. And uh, Water Boys, you know, we set out initially with a 32-well goal, representing 32 teams. And that was hard to get off the ground. And I had a bunch of stupid ideas and we just honed in on stuff and trial and error. Well, we changed our goal to a million people serve because by the time we had an opportunity to win that Super Bowl and St. Louis helped Water Boys get off the ground, we had shattered that 32 well goal. And now we're at half a million people served. Awesome. And these are large solar powered wells that serve up to 7,500 people. They're installed sustainably. You know, we're training locals and how to operate these wells, we have people on the ground with our implementation partner that allows these people when something breaks to get the, the care that they need so that we're not dealing with a water shortage somewhere. And something amazing happens when you give water to people, whether they're in poverty or they're warring or there's political unrest, like people centralize people or, you know, a lot of the people, the communities we work in in Tanzania are very spread out. Well, when you put a big well in the middle of like, you know, a population of 7,000 people that are dispersed because people are nomadic and there's no water source to get them to centralize. What happens is people start moving in, you start moving towards this thing. And that's the best evidence that I could like show is that like when we put one of these wells in, people move to it and there's more collaboration. There's more time for something else. There's more time for imagination. There's more time for hope. And so that's kind of what we do. So waterboys.org is the website and we're going to get to a million people. And since I retired, I, I moved on and I had to find um, a more forward facing, like kind of like, Hey, a guy that's going to be in the mix. I still run the show. I still, you know, I was meeting for three hours yesterday about a bunch of exciting stuff we're doing here domestically, hometown H2O. We're working on Navajo nation. We started a water for her initiative to address the women's issues that are intertwined with this, but I needed a, like kind of a, a forward-facing rep, and we picked Miles Garrett. 
two weeks later, he, he hit somebody in the head with a helmet. And, uh, you know, I love Miles. I think he's a tremendous kid. And he's just that. He's a kid. He made a big mistake. He owned it. And he and he had to own it. I mean, he, he made a mistake. Whatever you think about the reasoning and what happened on the field and what we do or don't know, he's got a lot of proving himself to do. And the reason we stuck with Miles is because I believe in giving people second chances, depending on what you do. And if we were all defined as football players by our worst football fight, a lot of us would be in a bad way. So Miles is taking the ball and run with it. And I think he's using this as an opportunity to, to gain redemption. And Water Boys is a great vehicle for that for him. And he's really kicking butt and giving us a lot of new young players that's bridging that gap between my generation and his. That's great. You know, and, and you can speak to this too when you talk about Miles. I don't think if anybody's ever been on an NFL sideline and if, if you really know some of these guys and having obviously been around many of these guys, there are often two different personalities, what you see in the locker room and then what you see on the field. It's just incredible. Like it's, it's nuts. Will Hayes, perfect example. Yep. (laughs) Was that what you were about to say? Yeah. Yeah. Will Hayes. Nicest person of all time. Like just sweetest person of all time. Loves kids. Best dad in the world make you laugh harder than anybody of all time. And then, you know, you get on the field, he makes you want to kill him. You know, my brother tried to kill him, almost killed him in a game. And, or he'll be, you know, extremely violent on the field and passionate. And he might be in a fight one day. And I mean, like we all, we all seen guys like that and play with dudes like that. Some of the biggest, baddest dudes on the field are really sweet people off the field. Yeah. Yeah. It's nuts. It's nuts. It's that, yeah, you're right. That switch is, is <laughs> amazing sometimes. And I learned very quickly which people I would want to go and interact with on the sidelines and which ones I knew were going to be trouble if I went over and even had to evaluate them for an injury because it was like, no, I'm I'm not going over there. Yeah. Steven Jackson, who's just a, yeah. a big, scary dude, but one of the nicest people Absolutely. of all time. You yeah. put that football in his hand, you run for the hills. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're in the world of podcasting now. You've developed your own media company, Chalk Media. Uh, you know, I love your interviews and stories. I, I, I always love when you have some sort of story that you relate to something that I had some personal experience with in St. Louis. What are your plans for the future with Chalk Media? Where do you see this going with you? I started off and I was like, ah, I want to do this big. And thanks for listening to Doc. But like, I just started out and I was like, man, I want to do this collaborative media kind of like, I don't know, was it like a conglomerate or something. But it was like, it was like, hey, I want to start this company, sort of, like where I can curate good content. Because I just feel like there's a void for authentic like content with like authentic voices. As many voices there are in pro sports, I just feel like there's enough people that clamor for, we don't need the stars all the time. What we need is like the real guys and girls. And so I said, you know, I'd like to start this thing. Well, eventually what I realized pretty quickly is as passionate as I am about the podcast, you know, which is my day-to-day grind that I kind of replaced football with there's not gonna be a lot of time early on for me to just grow like a network so we've just tried to hunker down and say like hey we're gonna build this podcast and when it's time to you know parlay this into something bigger that time will be obvious and we're headed there i mean you know we just signed with blue wire and we did a big deal with WinBet just the other day it broke so that's a big deal for us because it, it feels like for me you know the money's great you know certainly people patting you on the back's great but the the big thing is, it's also nice to not pay the win, like the win pays me, which is, it's, I mean, it's an incredible feeling all the times I've been in that casino. But like, it, it just, it's a signal to me, my co-host making, you know, the production guys who work their butts off behind the scenes, we're up at one in the morning working and we're, we're burning the midnight lamp and I'm, they're researching. 
like it's it's a signal that we're a commodity like on some level and people are invested in kind of blue wire believes in what we're doing and that that feels good i'm autonomous i'm very independent you know that's a lot of the reason i picked blue wire for us because you know i don't want to be told what to do what to talk about who to have on like i will run my podcast like i want to run my podcast and i think people value that because they can tell when you're doing the thing that everybody feels like they have to do i think the media can be a big race you know like everybody's racing to be first or racing to have the most outrageous take or oh we have to talk about this thing today because it happened well i don't necessarily have to talk about that why like people are inundated with that topic today yeah, I want to talk about something different. And I've tried to approach every pod like I would approach football for the most part. Like I'm going to bring my energy. I'm going to bring my passion. I'm going to bring preparation. And uh, in a lot of ways, you can kind of control that a little bit better than you can in football. Because if I prepare super hard for a podcast, now there is such a thing as over preparation. And that's a line you have to find. But if I prep really hard for a pod, it's probably going to be pretty good. There were a number of games I worked my ever-loving ass off and could barely show up on the stat sheet or played terribly or got hurt. And I know our St. Louis teams busted their asses. It wasn't for a lack of trying. That's the backdrop for me entering this whole situation where, like, listen, you can't necessarily work yourself into a huge listenership overnight because you can't control what people are buying and I'm going to sell what I'm going to sell. But what you can do is satisfy yourself and say, hey, this is paying the bills. It's successful. It's a thing I can be proud of. And I don't need to chase people in this. You know, like in, in the NFL, you're like, well, how do I become the best? I have to accrue X amount of sacks or I have to accrue these accolades or we have to, you know, obviously win games from a team standpoint. Comparing to other stars was like, yeah, you have to get where that guy is on some level. Like when you compare to other people in podcasting or in the media, if you're truly being authentic and you're trying to catch somebody, well, how do you catch that person if it's not happening? You have to change who you are. You have to emulate them. You have to like, now there are techniques you have to learn and you learn as you go and shit. I've learned so much over two years. <laughs> yeah. But if the compass is just being yourself, the minute they stop buying that, then like, I'm good. Cause I don't, I don't, this isn't as much of a necessity as football was for me, you know? And I think people like that kind of thing where it's like, you're kind of going to get what he's really interested in. And there's plenty of opportunity to hear about, you know, Aaron Rodgers and the, the trade that we've been talking about for two months, yeah. again, somewhere else, you know, like I'm going to talk about some crazy shit. Yeah. I, I like to listen to podcasts. I don't know if you, as someone who is a podcaster, like to listen to podcasts, do you have any podcasts that you listen to, or are you just kind of busy all the time doing this and, you know, obviously got little kids at home that makes things time consuming? Yeah. Yeah. I think eventually like the, the hard thing with me is consistency, like trying to like, you know, like I'll start an audio book and, you know, I'll get through like eight chapters and, you know, like, you know, I'm an ADD guy with the H in there. And then like, on top of that, I'm extremely busy. I try to keep myself busy. You almost medicate the downtime with, with staying busy when you retire. So I haven't gotten in a groove of like finding a podcast that I just listen to religiously. It's funny because I got some buddies who have really killer podcasts and I will pop in and listen to their stuff. Going back to what I said, it was like my co-host one day was like, he was frustrated with me because we were doing something that he didn't like and he thought was unbefitting of like podcast, the blue book yeah. manual or whatever. Sure. And he was like, dude, do you even listen to other podcasts? And I was like, no. And I think actually it helps me because I think it's allowed me to keep my standards pretty high. I think, you know, like I'll listen to some other podcasts to see that like, okay, we don't have to be doing X, Y, or Z. They're not doing it. But like, honestly, if I start listening to other stuff, I feel like I'll start to be 
like impressionable and I'll be like, oh, I want to, I want to emulate them. Even though I said, I know it's wrong. Invariably you take from stuff you like. And so for the most part, I'll just pop in and listen to a pod, whether it's my buddy, Ryan Rosillo, who's really sharp, does sports as well as anybody. Or if I'm trying to have fun, listen to Big Cat and PFT over there at uh, Pardon My Take. And I really like non-sports stuff. So if there's like a murder mystery kind of mini series or something, a lot like there's these six episode documentaries, that's what I'm in. I'm more into the non-sports stuff. I get enough of it elsewhere, you know? Yeah. No, I think I, you know, when I started doing this, I, I listened to podcasts with more of that ear of like, oh, maybe I should try some of that or do some of that or have that and realize that that, you know, again, it's just not, it's not you. I, I, I get it. So I totally understand that thought process. It's just not authentic if you're thinking about just trying to take someone else's thing. You know, also, we probably both hate our voices. I don't know about you, but, like, <laughs> I have a good voice, but like, like, I hate hearing myself talk, which is ironic because that's what I'm doing for a living. But yeah, you know, what you know I mean? like, yeah, so I do. Sometimes you listen to other people and like you're like, that doesn't sound that great. Like, yeah, I'm yeah. just we're not that bad. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. So I think there is like every once in a while you should listen to the best to realize that it's not some like otherworldly thing because I didn't listen to podcasts when I was playing. So you'll hear about somebody's podcast and it becomes like folklore. Yeah, right. And then you listen to it and you're like, oh, it's dudes talking. Right. <laughs> When you mentioned about voices, when I was getting some stuff together and just making sure I had all the dates right for you for introducing you, I found on your your Wikipedia page something about your first appearance as an infant with your dad's uh, PSA about anti-drinking or something like that. Oh, that's funny. And as I was listening to that, I'm like, oh my God, if I just close my eyes and I'm not looking and seeing Howie here, that's Chris. I can hear your voice yeah. totally with that. I mean, just pretty at those funny. same ages, it's, it's hilarious. So It's pretty funny. I mean, like, and he shed his like, uh, Charlestown accent, like South Boston. I mean, like when I try to be on a podcast, you know, like there is something to finding your voice. Like, sure. Like I don't have like a heavy Southern accent, but I live in Charlottesville. So I have like a mid Atlantic kind of like thing. And when I'm around the house, you know, sometimes I'm a mumbler, like, you know, my wife will make fun of me sometimes because I sound so damn like, you know, just sometimes I sound country as hell. When I'm podcasting, like I really do try to like make an effort to speak clearly you know, to not mumble, to be, because when you're in locker rooms for a long time, like you're so yourself, you're so relaxed around your buddy. It's like this process of like learning how to speak really like um, eloquently, but then tearing it down a little bit. So you can like then be, it's, you got to learn to be really like polished and then you got to tear that down, at least in my experience, because that's the kind of pot I'm doing. So it's, it's it's a whole like kind of learning curve in the media. It's like, what's your voice? Who are you? And uh, you know, when when can you be yourself and 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 get your hands dirty and sound a little more unpolished? And when do you have to button it down? Sure, button it up and do like a monologue on something serious. And you're gonna have more like that kind of voice, which is another thing. It's it's just everything's a learning experience with it. Yeah, for sure. All right, I got one more fun question, and then I got my kind of like, what can what can we do to be uh, better docs kind of thing from your take as an athlete? I'm always interested in why players pick the number that they pick. So, you know, you came to St. Louis, you were 72. Obviously, you couldn't have 91 because we had Leonard Little. Yeah. So 72, what was your choice for 72 when you came over, and then you went the money grab and went to Leonard's Limber? Yeah, I did. I, well, the nice thing was Spags made me wait a full year. He was praying Leonard would come back so he'd have yeah. to play in second year. 
when I came in the league, there weren't a lot of good nineties on the on the Rams. Like I hated the number ninety nine, and I think that was one of the only ones. I think if I went down the list, James Hall had ninety six, yeah. Brian had ninety five, Victor Adianju had ninety four. I believe ninety three was available. Ninety two might have been Eric Moore. Ninety was Adam Carricker. Oh yeah, yeah. Adam Evans, Leroy Glover. So like. I was going to end up in like a 98 or 99. And I didn't want everybody to be like, hey, another white guy in 98. It's Grant Wishman, who I loved. But I'm like, you know, I just didn't want to like invite that. And then 99, I hated. 91 was gone. That was my college number. 72 was like, the. it was just like, man, what an ugly number. But OCU Manora makes it look cool. And maybe I got a shot at making it look cool. Um you know, it looked good my third year when, when I was getting home a lot in the back half of my second year, but there was a long stretch the first half of my second year where I didn't have a sack and we were really bad anyway. So it was like just chaos. But I just remember being like, is it the number? Like, <laughs> like maybe I should just switch it mid season to something, you know, different. But when I finally got 91, I felt pretty good in it, but that'll always have a special place in my heart. 72. Yeah. Well, we still, you know, I don't know if you get back to St. Louis very often, but I, I still see people milling around sometimes with their 72 long wow, jersey. On, so. throwback, baby. Yeah, it's, it's still there yeah. sometimes. The old Reeboks. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Reeboks for sure. We had the zip up pants and everything. We had yeah. the, the like the, the uncomfortable pants, the, the stiff jerseys. Yeah, kids uh-huh. now, they got a good. You brought back some some horrible memories when you brought up Leroy Glover's name. I love Leroy, but he was the hardest person to put an IV in. Matava and I, we could never get an IV in that guy. Or Leonard. Was, uh, Leonard was not too bad. Leonard, Leonard was okay. I remember one time y'all had to go in like his foot. <laughs> we did. We did. We did have to go in his foot. So I remember we we threatened Leroy with going in his scalp just because he was, you know, he's bald. Yeah. But but no, he didn't. He didn't go for that. So. You guys were great because it was easy to find my veins. Oh, good golly. Yeah. You were, you were, you got pipes. You yeah, got pipes. You guys were cool about it. So we're a podcast that's listened to by docs, physical therapists, athletic trainers. I always like to get the perspective of athletes as far as their interactions with the sports medicine community. You know, just like athletes, we want to improve our skills and how we interact with athletes. You know, from your perspective, is, is there anything from your interactions with the sports medicine community that's been positive over the years or things that we could be doing better you know, communicating with you, what have you, those types of things as an athlete. Well, you know, thinking back to the Rams and the, that training room, I just had Andrew, Andrew Whitworth on my pod the other day. And like, we had yeah. talking about Reggie and the guys and like, people are going to make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like trainers are going to make mistakes. Players make mistakes. Like Reggie and I have had tough conversations. Like we've probably cussed each other out about stuff. Doctors and I have not seen eye to eye. Mm-hmm. But I think there's like a common decency, respect, and and honesty that players just expect. And as long as you give them that, like you're going to be able to eat those losses, you know, where a player's like, well, you weren't right about this thing. Or, you, you, you know, it appears you pushed me back sooner than I should have been back. I think one of the hardest things is that like timelines are a real struggle to adhere to for players. And yeah. they're also really hard for trainers, I'm sure, because, you know, you are listening to the coach not listening to the coach, not doing the coach's bidding, but like for doctors and trainers, like a timeline is set, which is to me kind of worthless. It's just an aggregation of like a bunch of players, but every body type is different. Every position is different, the severity of an injury. So not being kind of enslaved by that timeline. And I think like knowing your athletes, so you know who's milking it, who's not. But also just realizing the gravity of like when you put that timeline out, all the fans read it too. 
And I think I talked about this recently. There were injuries I had where people didn't know the severity and that's fine because that can create an advantage for the opponent sometimes. If there is a way to like not put the player in a bad spot, whether it's with the coaches or with the media, part of this is out of trainer's control because of the information that needs to be disseminated to the fans and to gamblers and that sort of thing. Like, I think it's the respect, it's communication. It's not setting players up to fail in the public eye and like in the locker room, you know, what you say is important. But more than anything, you know, and I was saying Reggie and those guys, they had fun. You got to bring some fun, man. Like you got to, guys are, it's a room where guys could be terrified anyways to be in because it signals that it's, you know, it's bad to be here. You're, you're, you know, you're not durable. You're dealing with an injury. We can't depend on you. That's how players feel when they're in there, if they're of the right mindset, because you don't want to be in there. But you can yep. make their time in there a lot of fun. And you do that by like thinking of creative ways to to have fun, to to build that sense of community and to get to know your players. Like, don't be afraid to get to know them. You know, I actually think that you're going to get more out of players not being a hard ass about stuff, especially pro athletes. Like, yeah. you know, because pro athletes, have, they're there for a reason, especially veterans. You know what I mean? And I think if you can level with people, have fun, and just trust that players aren't going to take a mile if you give them an inch, um, and don't and don't set them up for failure. Those Rams training rooms were just so fun to be in. Yeah. And when you were hurt and you were down, like dudes picked you up. And so mm-hmm. Reggie always found like really creative ways to set like a positive tone in there. And so did Tyler, and Byron, yeah. and James, and all those guys. And so I just appreciate that, you know. Yep. Yep. Well, Chris, I, I am so thankful for you uh, taking some time out of your day to, to join our pod here a little bit and just kind of reminisce a little bit and talk about your experiences. And it's just truly been a pleasure to speak with you today. I'd be sure to check out everybody his Greenlight podcast, but also follow him on Twitter. He is worth the follow. He is yeah. always entertaining. He is one of the few pro athletes I know who regularly engages with his fans for better or worse, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I can't and control then, how the fans act. I can only control my reaction. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yep. So well, be sure to check it, out. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it was so good talking to you, man. I, I really appreciate all those, all the staff in St. Louis. I mean, like, what an awesome group. We dealt with so much BS, but great group. It was fun. It was fun. And, uh, you know, I've got great respect for all you guys. And, uh, you know, I, I think honestly, we had a, a great group of players in there. Um, it was just, it was just good people, which I think what really made it a lot more fun, even, even in the lean years. So <laughs> we had some bad luck, man, you know, in another dimension, we're going to go like 16. No, that's two. right. That's we're, right. We're running back somewhere you know what else I'm there. Saying, and you got to come out there as we're going to do like a Vegas reunion of Earth City. Yeah. Transients and, and fixtures. We're going to get everybody in there. So I I'll get hop. silky and playmaker and get silky. Get playmaker. <laughs> I'm talking about get players that were there for three weeks. You know? Oh, yeah, for sure. Anybody, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. That'd be great. Ooh. That'd be great. Oh, okay. Well, thanks again to Chris. Be sure to check out our uh, entire podcast library at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter and be sure to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast streaming platform. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.